Okay, well, thank you everyone and welcome back to our second session of the Bill and Jamila Torello Claims Settlement. As I mentioned, our goal in starting a Claims Settlement Institute was to take PMT's 20 years of experience in resolving cases and combine that with like-minded stakeholders from plaintiffs, defendants, insurance companies, claims, judges, mediators, so we could create a vehicle to advance the art and science of settling cases. And we heard from some very uh, great um, panelists in our first session, a lot of useful in information there. And in our second session, we're gonna go down a little bit into the not nuts and bolts, but into the information that we received when we sent out a survey um, about settlements in 2020 and 2021. It's uh, Pilgrim Miller in St. John's. We sent the survey out together. And so let's take a look at um, what we found. Now we know that 2021 was a very different year than 2020. Um, we know that in 2020, the courts shut down abruptly. Um, there was some activity, perhaps maybe by the end of the year. And we know that by 2021, um, things were starting to open up. There were more court conferences. There were more in-person court conferences, virtual conferences. So the whole year had a very different feel to it. And one of the things that we wanted to know was did the reopening of the courts, did that make a difference in resolving cases? So let me first ask Jeff Shulman. Jeff, um, you're the managing partner of BMT's upstate offices in New York, Buffalo, and Syracuse. I know you see a lot of cases, you settle a lot of cases, and um, you also litigate cases nationally. From your perspective, did the reopening of the courts make any difference in resolving cases? So yes, I'm. You know, we're trying cases now. We just took a verdict in Greene County. Actually, got a defense verdict. Um, but um, that's always, you know, when you have a real trial date looming, that always puts pressure on parties to settle, um, which is fantastic. So we're seeing cases move. I, I will say that you know judges are putting two and three uh, cases deep on the trial calendar. So you may not be the number one case to go, but the threat is there. It's marked final. Um, so we're seeing that definitely uh, 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 inspire some, some settlement as we get closer. We're getting toward the end of the year. We have a bunch of mediations scheduled. Of course, we try and push all year round, but there's always that year end push. So we're seeing that. Um, but I, we also spoke about this and I think we might've lectured about this. We saw a lot of settlements during uh, the pandemic. And the question was, are plaintiffs firms discounting cases? Uh, or why are we seeing a, an increase or a spike in settlements? And it, we weren't seeing necessarily cases settling for less than their value, but we were seeing some firms incentivized to try and get to the table sooner because there was no looming trial date. Excellent. John Tambasia, you practice a lot in New Jersey. And I wanted to ask you from the experience that you've had in New Jersey, has the reopening of the courts made a difference in resolving cases? It, it has made a difference with certain cases. And, and I say this with caution because we've talked a lot about the, the dynamic of how parties carry themselves in settlement negotiations. One of the first ways to get yourself to a settlement in New Jersey is to be unprepared for trial. Um, the courts are definitely calling cases in smaller numbers, 
So don't be surprised if you're one of 16 and they have eight judges. Your chances of going out are very good. The party who is not ready will definitely get called and you'll see a settlement. So New Jersey's taking a very, very methodic approach. They're screening cases, uh, larger cases which have made the dynamic of getting on the list. You file a, an eliminate motion, you will get a trial judge. And don't be surprised if after your motion, you're said, come in a week later. So yes, we're seeing an increase in settlements and we are also seeing an increase in trials. So it's an interesting dynamic. Thanks, John. Nancy, from the claims perspective, did you find that the reopening of the courts made a difference in settling cases? I'll be honest with you, not really. Um, it helped to move cases, obviously, but not with settlements, um, unless the case the, the last thing to do was to have a trial. Um, the cases are really um, not moving. Um, adjusters are looking for um, discovery items. Uh, so I don't really see a lot of settlements um, with the reopening of the courts. Thank you. That's an excellent perspective. And John um, Locke. Yes. Tom, uh, we have a VIP in the in the audience, John McCune, who had a question. Hi, sure. John, out there. Uh, John wanted to know about the defense verdict, so I figure I'll uh, give a little anecdotal uh, evidence. Mm. So it was a case where um, a motorcycle operator was driving home from a bar, and he drove into a dumpster that was parked along uh, private owner's property, and we had the company who had uh, leased the dumpster to the homeowner and placed it in the roadway. A lot of different issues uh, present, very bad accident, uh, but the motorcycle operator uh, blew a 0.18 and was legally intoxicated. Um, we had summary judgment denied. We argued that it was the sole proximate cause of the accident. Um, and the thrust of the case against us as the company who leased the dumpster was a, we didn't have proper markings on the dumpster, including reflective tape, et cetera. And B, where we placed it created a hazard. Um, it wasn't perfectly adjacent to the, the sidewalk and the curb line, uh, but it was a curved roadway. So you couldn't possibly uh, place it adjacent to the curb or roadway, uh, uh, excuse me, curb line or, or sidewalk. So uh, we were getting ready for trial. We had some expert uh, video depositions of uh, physicians. Uh, on damages. And then uh, when we picked a jury, we were advised that we were, uh, the judge was bifurcating the trial. So we tried liability only, and uh, we were able to get our client out based on plaintiff's uh, uh, intoxication being the sole proximate cause of the accident. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Um, let me uh, switch it back to uh, Joe Block and ask him if the reopening of the courts made a difference in resolving cases. Joe? I think you have to break this down into two different subsets. Um, smaller cases, meaning cases with lower values or, or limited insurance coverage, and, and the bigger cases, the seven plus figure cases. Um, our experience here at Block O'Toole and Murphy is we really didn't have a drop off in 2020, 2021, um, or, or this year. Um, despite the courts being closed in 2020, we settled a lot of cases. Um, for what we thought was the fair value. Uh, you know, obviously we weren't in a position where we were willing to take a haircut on a case. We'd wait it out. Um, and then when the courts started opening, I think one of the things that happened initially 
is the courts were bringing in the smaller cases, meaning the cases that had fewer witnesses that were only going to take a couple of days to try. And that's kind of been what the courts have done. Now they're opening up to those bigger cases. And we've had, you know, we've had a bunch of trials that have taken place. Um, I think courts trying cases and being open for trials is never going to do anything but increase the number of settlements. Um, because I have what you call that, that backstop. Um, it's either settle it or, or a jury is going to make that decision for you. So I, I think as time goes on, it, it will increase the, the number of settlements. Um, but historically, what we've seen so far is we've had a bunch of trials. The bigger cases um, weren't necessarily affected by the courts reopening at the outset because they were really just taking those smaller, shorter trials. Good. Thanks, Joe. Let me, uh, let me tell you what the result of our participants in our poll was. 66% uh, of our respondents said no. It made no difference in resolving cases that the courts were open. And 33% said yes. So Joe, can I have slide number uh, seven, please? So these were some of the comments that we got from participants in our survey. Um, you can see as more trials, judges were involved, judges are trying to push cases. Uh, like you said, uh, as more trials are held, there's more incentive to settle cases. Some judges facilitate settlements. The court deadlines forced both, so forced both sides to focus on value risks and resolution. Although the courts are open, a backlog is apparent. We've talked about that. And people said, I think we got used to cases not going to trial in 2020 and 21. Now that the courts are opening and cases are being set for trial, mediation is being pushed more and more, still virtual. So, it seems like everybody's experience was borne out one way or another by the results of our uh, poll, uh, our survey. So the question that we wanted to ask after that is, let's go to, um, let's go to slide eight. Um, did the backlog in the courts result in more settlements? We know that there was a tremendous backlog in the courts, things didn't happen for probably a good portion of the year in 2020. Um, and 2021, we've reopened, we have courts opening, we're having trials. So let me ask uh, Jeff Schulman once again, let me start with you. Did the backlog result in more settlements? Jeff? You know, I think it's, I think Joe hit it best that you separated into two things in regards to the smaller cases and the higher cases. Uh, the real preeminent firms out there, they're not discounting their significant cases, but some of the lower hanging fruit and some of the more uh, desperate plaintiff's offices, you had an opportunity to get some cases settled during that pandemic while that was going on. And now, especially with the courts open, I think people are paying more attention to, even though there's a backlog, that there are trial dates and cases are being sent out for trial. Good. And how about uh, how about you, John? Did you find that the backlog resulted in more settlements, John Tambasia? Uh, absolutely. The the counsel who were savvy um, presented their cases up front. They gave good demands, and they were aggressive in pursuing it. And I will say this on behalf of the carriers: 
in order to keep the companies healthy, a lot of AVPs started getting involved in cherry picking cases, even big ones for settlement. So yes, the, the backlog helped. Good, Nancy, from the claims perspective, did the backlog result in more settlements from what you saw? Um, yeah, I mean, it was the only way you were gonna move a case. So, uh, and people were stuck at home and they were looking through their caseload and um, taking advantage of all the virtual uh, means of communication. So I do think a lot of cases settled during the uh, court closure. Thank you. And Joe Block, same, same question. Uh, and your, your answer is about the same, that, that the backlog in the courts maybe made some cases settle, but not the ones that were really um, not the low hanging, not other than the low hanging fruit. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think the reason that in, in you know in the seven figure cases that that types of cases we handle, I think the reason we were able to keep those those settlement levels at the same uh, same area, to both in terms of the value and the number of cases we were settling, we were able to do that. And I think for a couple of reasons. Number one, when you have that backlog, so when there's no trial dates, especially on cases that you have summary judgment on, now you've got interest running at nine percent. And you know that cases are going to sit around now for years and years and years. So I think um, I think the carriers and, and defense counsel were really proactive in saying, well, hold on, these are cases we need to take a look at. They're only going to get worse for us. And with no trials looming, we need to continue to aggressively handling those cases and try and get them resolved. And, and they did. I also think it afforded all of us by being home and and. We, it gave us the opportunity to slow down a little bit, I think, and look at our cases more in depth. We weren't wasting our time sitting in, in a courtroom for four hours for a conference, traveling to and from court. So it gave us more time in, during the day to really sit down, dig through those files, ascertain, you know, where's this case at? What are the facts? And is this right? That is something that we can get done. So I think those factors led to some cases getting done. Um, you know, more quickly. And then obviously there was those, those cases that, that languished. Joe, I apologize. I, I said Joe Block instead of Joe Donahue. I That's apologize. okay, Jeff and I share one brain. That's what we always say. <laughs> right. But my, my question is now that we're back as to where we are, did we lose that moment of reflection for us to take a look at those cases and give those cases some hard thought about maybe this is a case that we ought to get rid of now that we're back in the groove, so to speak? We absolutely should. I mean, as as Jeff Miller always says, we're in the resolution business. So we should always be looking at those cases and saying which cases are right for resolution. From the plaintiff side, it's, you know, has the client gotten to maximum medical improvement? Are they, are they still treating or is there still an open question about a surgery? Have you done your due diligence in looking at all your pleadings with respect to all the different types of damages? Have you looked at your economic losses? Because you can't engage in, in meaningful settlement discussions until you have all of that information. But once you do, what are you waiting for? There's no reason to wait. Um, not saying that you're, you're gonna be giving anything away or taking a lesser number. Um, you can always engage in those discussions and if you can't reach a resolution, you can't. But there's no reason to wait and not see if, uh, if a resolution can be had. Just like, Jeff Miller says, do it yourself. Let's get on the phone. Let's, you know, get an email going. Let's do something. Try and make those cases resolved because. Absolutely. You know, closed case, as they say, is, is the best case. Closed case is a happy client. That's right. 
Uh, I've got a question from someone in, uh, uh, that's uh, uh, watching here. It says, from a, a defense perspective, how do you balance out not appearing too eager to settle when you have a bad case and increase that final number based on the signal you are sending? So um, I think that's a good question for Jeff Miller, who's a master negotiator and certainly handles a lot of very heavy cases. And so when we're dealing with a bad case, and he doesn't want to signal, you know, that uh, uh, he believes it's bad. Jeff, how do you keep a poker face on that? That's a good question. And we've dealt with that before um, with carriers saying, hey, I don't want to look too eager. The truth is, I, I always say, you could look eager to resolve, but don't look desperate. It's okay to let, let them know. We're acknowledging that this is a case we're looking to resolve. We're not desperate. We're going to pay fair value. We're not going to overpay, but this is a case we'd like to move. Acknowledging the weaknesses on your side and the strengths on the other side, and then negotiating it from there. There's nothing wrong with going in and knowing, hey, this is a bad case. This is not a case that we want to put before a jury. It's the reality of it. You get credibility when you speak that way. There are times that you're forced to try cases, whether you're on this side or that side of the fence. There's somebody on the other side that's not playing ball with you and you're forced to try it. But I never have a problem. And sometimes everybody's like, oh, I don't want to ask for the mediation. I don't want to be the party. We're not the culpable party. We're the There's 14 defendants and you're paying an obscene amount of defense costs. I have no problem picking up the phone and telling everybody, you know what? We're not the heavy, but we want to get this case resolved because my carrier wants to stop paying defense costs. So let's move the case. And uh, as Joe mentioned earlier, it's the communication and it's the credibility and the relationships. And there's nothing wrong with at the outset saying, we're eager to settle a case. Yeah, and I will just okay, you know, piggyback on that. <clears throat> there's always, even the best case, there's always risk on both sides, right? Joe, Joe knows that he's going, you know, to pick the best jury he possibly can, but there's, that's no guarantee that he's going to get the number he wants. And so what Jeff was saying is, you know, a plaintiff's lawyer has to give us an incentive to settle. You know, if their demand is so outrageous or outlandish that it doesn't motivate or incentivize us to want to make a, an offer, uh, even on a bad case, uh, because they think they've got, you know, look, I've got a, you know, an eight-figure case and I'm not coming off of it, then, okay, well, then there's little incentive to mediate or, or settle and every incentive to try the case. So I, I turn it over to Joe, you know, obviously, even on the bad cases that you have, I mean, you don't take a lot of them. I know some, you know, the best plaintiff's firms, they turn down the cases that might get them into trouble, but every once in a while, you probably have that case where you say, I shouldn't have taken it. And now you're faced with a mediation. How do you present that where you have to come with the poker face? You know, what I'd say is this, it's no secret. Jeff Miller is gonna know if I have a case that's bad for me. I'm gonna know if Jeff Miller has a case that's bad for him. So I, I don't need to, to posture. We both know when we have a good case or a bad case and it's no secret. And I don't think there's any harm in being the one reaching out saying, hey, are you interested in sitting down on this thing? And the reason is this, whether you have a good case or a bad case, you're gonna have a number that you're willing to resolve the case for. And that number isn't a set number, but it's in a range, right? 
And if I go to a mediation with Jeff and I have a case that's great for me and he doesn't want to settle it within the range that I'm willing to settle it in, I'm not going to settle it. And if Jeff has a case that's bad for me and I'm looking for a number that he's not willing to settle it within that range, you know, if I'm not willing to do that, then he's going to try it. And we both know that. So it's really no secret. So I don't see it as coming from a position of strength or weakness. You're going to have your number or your area of where you'd settle the case. And it's either going to settle or it's not. And typically, like I said, the gap, meaning that difference between where you see the case and where I see the case is typically not a large gap. There are cases where that occurs, but that's not typically what happens. Um, so I don't think there's any weakness in reaching out. Um, and I think Jeff's right. You know, acknowledging uh, in the problems that you have with your case when you do have problems is going to be helpful. I don't think you lose credibility. I, I think you gain credibility. And at the end of the day, if, if you can, you know, it's willingness to try the case too, like Judge de Blasi said, in terms of, you know, knowing your adversary, I know Jeff Miller is going to be willing to try a case. Um, I hope he knows that we're going to be willing to try a case. And I think at the end of the day, that gets everybody into a reasonable area to have fruitful discussions. Joe brings well, up, if there's Joe any brings... doubt, if there's any doubt why Joe's so successful, I, I hope that eliminates any of the doubt because that's really, you know, we don't hear that enough from plaintiff's firms, that 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 honest approach, you know, we wish more firms were like Block and Tool where they're both highly skilled going to try cases, but also very reasonable to deal with, absolutely. No anyway, question. Jeff, I'm sorry yeah, to no question, and Joe, you brought up a great point and you just said it. And it's why you guys, as you know, Jeff said, one of the reasons you're not walking in there with an exact number. You have a range and you're not drawing a line in the sand. And it's something we spoke about earlier, you know, on the stubbornness and willing to negotiate and willing to resolve and willing to listen. You're walking in with a range. And I would tell you, you said something at the end when you were talking, and I don't remember the exact words, but it, it's this concept that I agree with you fully. If there was no card game, if there was no posturing, if there was no gamesmanship to these negotiations, and you ask people in most of these mediations to write down on a piece of paper what they truly believe a fair settlement value is on the case. Obviously, they wouldn't be equal all the time, but most of the time, we would all be within striking range. Those of us who really know how to value these cases would always be, and sometimes there's a premium. Frankly, there is a Block and O'Toole premium out there. I'm paying more for a case that you guys are prepping than Joe down, not you, Joe, Joe down the block who doesn't know what they're doing and isn't going to try the case and has to refer it out. You do get a premium for your skills, but in regards to a true valuation of a case, I've, I've texted Joe Donahue, I've texted Jeff Block and said, hey, I'm going in on this case. And just, it's not yours. Just here it is. It's a 240. The guy has a back fusion. He's 36. It's in this, you know, <coughs> I'm looking at it in this range. Where, where do you guys see it? And every now and then I'll get a, this is where, but Block and O'Toole may be looking for, but they're in the same range. And it's it's a, a, a true um, part of our business that if there was less of that game playing and 
obviously we're all in the same business and we say it's the resolution business and there's relationships that go on and there has to be, we're all looking to do the best we can for our clients. Everybody's looking to the best they can for their clients. But at the end of the day, without the animosity and without taking things personal and without the adversarial part of it, if you really sat down and discussed the case without posturing, most people are going to be in a strikeable range. And, and usually that you, you meet that strike because within that gray range, you might take a little bit less than you were hoping for. You might pay a little bit more than you really wanted to because you really don't have a settlement and ever, unless everybody leaves a little bit happy and a little bit unhappy. That's the way you reach resolutions because the alternative is the risk. The risk that, you know, leaving the hands of, of six people. And sometimes you're willing to take that risk because you're you're far enough apart. Um, but most of the time, you don't have to take that risk. So it sounds like from talking with uh, Joe and Jeff and Jeff, we're in a new enlightened era. Because back <laughs> in the day, if you remember this, I'm sure you do, you'd have an adjuster that would say, I'm not going to make an offer until I get a demand. You know, and we've all had that where, you know, the the adjuster would not be moved until the plaintiff had taken the first step, kind of like that, you know, that Chinese tea dance or something where, where everybody's got a scripted set of moves that has to happen. But it sounds like, you know, things have progressed, that there's much more communication for the better. Because now, you know, if you don't have a demand, you can just call up and say, here, I got an offer for you. It may not be what you're looking for, but take a look at it and get back to me. Does that sound like what's happening yeah, I, I, it's funny, I, you know, in, in the last number of years, the amount of times I've gotten a call with an offer without having even asked for a demand or, or, or demand being made has increased significantly. And, you know, I always respond that, you know, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate you, you making the call and, and, and making an offer. Um, I haven't given you a demand. It shows that you're really looking to, to go into this in good faith to see if we can get it resolved. Let's get the discussions going. Thanks. That's a, that's a great answer. And I wanted to move on to one of our, our next questions that we asked in our settlement survey. And it piggybacks on a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. But the, the question was, were there more or less cases settled in 2021 than 2020? So let me just start at the top. Jeff Miller, more cases 2021 than 2020. What do you think? You know, it's a really a hard question, and I know you have the statistical data. Um, you would think that, you know, it's the answer would be 2021 because, uh, you know, everything's open, people are back to work. But I really, in my head, believe that we had such a big push in 2020, more than ever, like uh, Joe said, we got the opportunities to really dig into our files because we weren't spending four hours in court on conferences and there was a big push to move cases i think on both sides of the equation it might have been 2020 i really don't know the answer yeah you hold that thought let me ask john tambasia i'm going to go right down the line get everybody's opinion and then i'll tell you what the results were john tambasia uh, for me oddly enough 2021 was pretty good for settling uh, cases uh, let's see, Jeff Shulman. I'm going to say 2020. 2020, okay. And Nancy, how about from your perspective? 
Um, I would have to say 2020. And I think uh, it was due in large part because um, everything shut down in March. And when people saw, carriers saw that, you know, um, the courts were not going to be back open by September. Well, now what are you going to do? You can't let the case just languish. So if you had what you had needed on the file, you reached out and you made an offer. Um, and I think a lot of the cases settled that way because on the plaintiff side, and Joe, you know, you can chime in with, you know, doctor's offices closed um, and um, experts not available because of the pandemic, you kind of just looked at what you had in front of you. You know, we're all experts. We all kind of know where these cases are going to go, where they're going to end up. And people were going through them and they made these offers based on what they had. Yeah, I I, I think uh, although they were close, I think 2020 edged out 2021. Okay, so let me tell you what, the, what our, our participants said. Our participants said, the same amount of 55% said it was the same amount of settlements in 2021 as 2020. 33% said there were more settlements in 2021 than 2020. And 11% said there were less settlements in 2021 than 2020. So the majority of people felt that there were just as many settlements with the courts being opened as with the courts being closed. Now that may be just people's perceptions um, you know, on, on what their individual statistics were, but it seemed to be from whatever happened in 2020, at least 55% of the people felt that it carried through and there were more cases settled. So that's a very interesting uh, phenomenon. Uh, not sure how to explain it, but, you know, that's what our participants said. Let's go to um, number nine, slide nine. These are some of the factors that people put down as affecting settlements. The carrier's desire to aggressively close cases, the length of time the case had been pending, the injury and the value of the case. Uh, a regulatory agency was looking at our financials, so there was a push to review all reserves for adequacy and closing all claims off the books. As more trials are held, there is more incentive to settle cases. So let me start again with uh, Jeff Miller. Jeff, uh, these sound like the factors that you saw affecting settlements. Anything that you would add or you would highlight in there? Uh, there's, there's no question, but I think that one of the things where I believe that carriers got um, concerned <clears throat> that their pendings were going to explode in regards to the backlog in the court system. And, and they were definitely more aggressive in pursuing resolution. Did you find that John Tambasia from your carriers that you were handling in New Jersey, they were more aggressive because of the fact that the pending might increase so dramatically? Uh, absolutely, because one of the little items people forget about um, and, and this is a, a tip, I guess, for settlement. Uh, in many states, Department of Insurance, Department of Banking Insurance does keep tabs on reserves and how many cases are moving. 
So in addition to reinsurance, this is another item to consider and be practical about on both sides. Nancy, how about for you? Carrier's desire to aggressively close cases, does that tie into reserving and trying to close out some cases so monies could be freed up? Absolutely. Uh, I think Jeff was, Jeff was spot on when he said that the adjusters and the carriers were afraid that their um, pendings were going to explode. Uh, we all knew that um, suits weren't being filed uh, and you were afraid that the day those courts opened and um, you know there was not going to be any limitations on the statute that all of a sudden you were going to get slammed. So they definitely aggressively closed their cases. Good. Jeff Shulman, uh, what was your perspective on, on this? Carriers wanting to close cases, freeing up reserves, yeah, no, I think I think they're all good points. I think another point uh, that I see is particularly on labor law construction cases, if the carrier has a strong relationship with the insured, they're basically a repeat customer. You know, they want to do right by that insured, and they're more active on those cases and more willing to settle. The cases where they've renewed, the insured might have renewed with another carrier, a runoff account, might not get the kind of attention. And it definitely can affect whether or not they're willing to put up authority or, or be more interested in pursuing the risk. Good, thank you. Um, let's uh, talk about um, the elephants in the room. Let's go to slide 10. And I know we'll have a lively discussion here because we've already broached the topic. Um, as you can see, the Law Journal reported that New York was the third <coughs> in nuclear verdicts. So obviously Florida first, California, and then New York. So the question was, did the fear of runaway verdicts, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, did that have an effect on settlements in 2020, 2021? Let me go back and ask uh, Professor Beer, your perspective from what you saw with the companies that you're involved with, did this drive uh, settlements in the years that we're talking about. Professor? Well, I'll tell you that certainly um, anecdotally, when I talk to my claims professional colleagues and certainly actuaries from other com companies, um, there was definitely an influence. I've, I've certainly heard claims or insurance companies re represent that the concern, if you will, the fear of nuclear verdicts definitely changed their behavior. Uh, and I will tell you that in a couple of the quantitative analyses that I've seen, it did in fact have an, you know, an effect. I don't know whether necessarily every single firm was involved, but I can tell you that there is clearly evidence that it affected behavior. And by the way, continues to affect behavior. Now, do we know which way it affects behavior? More settlements, more expensive settlements? Well, if you, look at, if you look at average severity, um, there's no doubt that the, the concept of social inflation is measured in a lot of different ways, or at least there's attempts. An average severity is one of the ways of doing that. Um, so whether or not it, it actually went to trial, clearly the nuclear verdicts show up on ones that go to trial. But I will suggest that even ones that are settled, um, average severity has clearly increased. Now, again, you're going to hear issues. Don't forget economic inflation is also affecting that. So medical costs, et cetera, are rising. But there are many people that I've spoken to who clearly feel that claims behavior has been has changed 
because they're very conscious of the, a significant increase in the danger of bringing something to trial. Thank you. Let me ask a question though. Are we actually, you know, I've mentioned this before, but I want to mention it again. You know, we say nuclear verdicts, nuclear settlements. settlements. There's nothing more frightening than the prospect of something nuclear, okay? You say that and all of a sudden you get a visceral reaction, you know, uh, like Putin threatening something nuclear, whatever, okay? Are we actually making this into more than it is? Are we kind of like taking something and calling it something else? Because there's always been runaway verdicts going back to the 70s and 80s. If you got a million dollars or $2 million in Brooklyn or the Bronx, that was considered to be a very, very significant verdict. Professor? I'll tell you, you know, I understand your sensitivity to the word nuclear, but from an actuarial perspective, when $150,000 claims start getting settled for $500,000, those are looked upon as nuclear settlements. Um, not, not nuclear in the sense of catastrophic globally, but clearly if you deal with the actuarial terminology of average severity. Uh, and of course, that's the big issue that you're basically looking at from an industry perspective. So the real measure of quote inflation, which would be the change in severity, uh, it, in my opinion, is no doubt is there, even if whether or not it's six digit numbers or eight digit numbers. Okay, let me ask some of my, my attorneys on, on the panel, that would be uh, uh, Jeff Miller. Uh, what's your perspective? Are we just talking about the same thing or are we simply saying that the severity and the, and the intensity of the cases are getting more expensive to settle in certain venues, labor law, for example? Yeah, you know, it, it's a hard thing because I, I do believe that, I don't know that the severity has really increased per se, uh, and I'm gonna age myself, but uh, I remember being a young attorney in this business and a six-figure case being a substantial case, you know, a $250,000 case was a big, big case. I'm not saying it still isn't, but a $750 was an extraordinarily huge number for me growing up that somebody was getting three quarters of a million dollars. And now we're seeing seven-figure and eight-figure settlements just across the board. And, you know, all of these fusion cases, fusion has been the uh, injury of the uh, year. A lot of, you know, fusion cases between the pain and suffering and the economics, these cases have become seven figure cases. And I think that not just in the last year of inflation, but in the last five years of life, that the numbers have just significantly crept up and kept on creep you know kept on creeping up and the numbers i think it's just the numbers and the expectations and maybe no offense to anybody the addition of the millennials to the jury pool um i'm not sure where it came from but the numbers have become astronomical in my mind nancy let me get your perspective from claims what's your your take and your feeling on on this social inflation and the constant rise that we have and you know the a case that used to be worth 250 now worth two and a half million. Well, actually, conversely, uh, I remember when I started out in a soft tissue case, questionable liability, you know, you would settle a quote unquote nuisance value case for five thousand seventy five hundred dollars I, I mean, those cases now, 
they're settling for thirty-five to fifty thousand dollars. Not a, a big figure, but when you think, you know, that's a hundred percent more than it had settled in the past. So um, yeah, it, you're you've always had the the runaway, um, but because of the severity and the frequency now, uh, I think that um, that plays a, a a huge part. I see uh, being in the broker side of the business now and talking to many adjusters with many different philosophies from many different carriers, they all have that one thing in common. We cannot try this case. We are afraid of a nuclear verdict. And whether it's nuclear, as uh, Professor Beer had said, of you know, $30,000 or $30 million, it, it's still a, nu a nuclear verdict for that case. Okay. Let me ask Jeff Shulman. Jeff, what, what, what's your perspective? Uh, I agree with Jeff Miller that, uh, you know, we're about the same age and have seen, you know, a pretty staggering but gradual increase on these cases. And all of a sudden, here we are in 2022, and we're, when we're roundtabling cases, you know, we, when we talk about a cervical fusion, we're just talking about a different level of, uh, and different range of a number than we used to. It's just, it's absolutely uh, uh, much more impactful. Uh, uh, in damages right now. The other thing that I will comment on, it was briefly mentioned by someone today is, uh, and I think it was Professor Beer, uh, the Grieving Families Act. That's probably gonna be signed into law after the November elections by, by the governor in New York. That will have a tremendous impact in wrongful death cases. And those will be nuclear verdicts that we're gonna have to keep an eye on and settlements. And we're gonna talk about that for our final final topic, well, let me put it, yeah, let me go to uh, to uh, Joe Donahue and from the plaintiff's perspective, so we get a little balance here. Uh, what's your take on this? Here, so so what I did was before we started, I looked at Webster's and I looked on you know nuclear under litigation, and it was defined as fair and just. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's look. It, you know, I've, I've, I've been practicing for 25 years and I've definitely see, seen an increase in the numbers, but, uh, you know, then you have, you know, your cases that, that go for, for far less than that, even though they have the injury. So it really comes down to, uh, you know, a full assessment of, you know, both the facts uh, with respect to liability and damages, the risk. And yeah, there's some cases that go, you know, very big and some cases that don't. Um, and sometimes, you know, I don't know the rhyme and reason behind it, to be honest with you. I could have a very similar fact pattern that, you know, we're able to get a certain resolution and, you know, uh, same fact pattern, you know, where the carrier is not willing to, to pay that kind of num number. And sometimes there's no rhyme and reason. It's just hard to explain. Okay. Let me go to uh, Jack Jennings. Jack, uh, you had mentioned when we had our webinar the last time on nuclear verdicts that there is a way to protect against nuclear verdicts. And you mentioned that excess insurance is one of the ways that a company or insured can protect themselves. So given the fact that we're now number three in the poll, um, and I don't know whether that's gonna rise or not, but you know, certainly it gets your attention because you, know, you see those statistics and you don't forget them. Uh, do you find that there's more um, incidents of people protecting themselves or the companies or you know, self-insureds or insureds with excess insurance? What are you finding? Good news? That, well, the answer is no. no. Um, and uh, you know, a, a couple of the reasons uh, that I'll cite for that, probably the, 
the most important um, reason, the largest contributor to people, companies staying kind of where they are, is the hard insurance market. Um, you know, we, we uh, if costs are up 20, 30% for the same insurance we had last year, we're not going to buy more. And, you know, you have to get into the, the psychology of the, the corporate insurance buyer. Too often we ad adopt either we're in the insurance business or we adopt the, the, the psychology of the insurance company, uh, you know, who's, who's an aggregator. So we're always working towards a mean um, of experience across all of our insureds. For the corporate insurance buyer, it's more binary. Either we had a loss, we had a tough case, or we didn't. Um, so uh, uh, in times when prices are up, uh, and when, when insurance premiums are up, uh, companies are loath to add more limits. And this is despite the fact that insurance brokers have analytical tools, you know, they have benchmarking that says, you know, here's what similar companies uh, uh, do in terms of umbrella and excess limits. And they have modeling capabilities, which, you know, do simulations and, you know, come out with some result. If you have 50 million of uh, liability insurance, you have 95% chance of having enough coverage should you have a claim. It, you know, it, with the binary thinking of claim, no claim on the part of the insurance buyer, uh, they're not so moved by it. Um, insureds tend to consider buying higher limits um, when premiums are falling and they say, oh, we'll take some of the savings and, and plow it into, uh, into more insurance. Um, and it's shocking to me that brokers and insurance companies are not uh, in any way other than I call sporadic, uh, you know, prompting their clients to say, look, look at these nuclear verdicts. Or, you know, you read the, the Wall Street Journal, you know about this situation. Why aren't you buying more, uh, more insurance? Um, it's not happening except you know, again, sporadically, certain teams, certain business units. You go on Google now and, you know, Google hire and use 10 different uh, search queries and uh, zero results in terms of, hey, it's time to buy more insurance. Because insurance for insurance, you know, we have to remember to insurance companies, when the insurance mechanism works, this is not risk. Insurance companies should run towards risk of the individuals because they pool it. And when the pool works, they've collected, you know, a lot of money and sure they're paying out 60, 70 cents of the premium dollar on losses, but the rest goes towards um, expenses and shareholders. Um, so, uh, that, you know, that, that's my thought on, on, on that, Tom. Great. Thanks, uh, Jack. That was, uh, that was a good insight. Do you think this is going to have a spillover effect and increase damages overall in, uh, in cases? I think it's going to be something very 
specific in regards to these wrongful death cases. One of the things that we always said to carriers was like, there's two good things in New York about personal injury litigation, the wrongful death statute and the snow and progress defense. I said, that's about it. And we always use that. And we're not even going to be able to say the wrongful death thing anymore because it just changes the whole landscape of what damages are recoverable. And those actions are going to be way more dangerous and going to be valued way higher. Okay. I, I thank you for that. Uh, Jeff Shulman, you agree? Uh, well, I certainly agree that it's going to affect wrongful death cases dramatically. Do I think there'll be a spillover case, a spillover effect into other personal injury cases? I, I don't see that happening. I think that, you know, each case is going to continue to be judged on the merits. I think that, you know, when we reconvene in five years and look at the, you know, inflationary pressures. And I think we'll see a slight increase in the same injuries, you know, for the same fact pattern. Um, I respect what Joe said about each case being different, of course, but, you know, generally when uh, we look at these injuries uh, on, on different cases, uh, if we compare apples to apples, I think we're going to see a natural increase, but I don't feel Although as dramatic as the effect is going to be of the Grieving Families Act on wrongful death cases, I just don't see it spilling over into other uh, cases. I mean, maybe Joe has an argument to why it would, uh, and I'm not putting words in his mouth. I don't know that he would agree or disagree. No, I, I don't think it's going to have a spillover to, to other cases. I think this is going to be very specific to wrongful death cases. You know, the, what the law, what the you know proposed law is going to do is just give certain causes of action for people who, who otherwise didn't have any recourse. And quite frankly, New York is one of two states in the country that, that don't have those, the, the recourse that the, that the bill you know, provides for those left behind. So I think it's just, I do think obviously anytime you create um, a new category of damages um, in a particular cause of action, it will obviously you know, increase um, you know, the, the monetary value of that claim um, but I don't think it's going to have a spillover effect into, let's say, a, a labor law case with with a with an injury that doesn't include death. Do you think, Joe, that um, you know New York has certainly been way behind the, the curve in this? You mentioned we're one of two states. Um, is there any way that 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 people can argue against this, given the fact that we're we're, we're so far out of line? Yeah, look, I think, you know, I think people could argue that that the law shouldn't be passed, but I think that's an economic <laughs> argument of not wanting to obviously, you know, uh, include additional types of damages. Um, personally, I think it's a just law that's been proposed in that it, it gives, you know, whether it be a mother or a father or a sibling, you know, some measure of justice if they lose a loved one. You know, we're dealing with typically minor children that, you know, we've all handled those cases where the law just doesn't value um, the, the, the life of a, of a minor child um, and doesn't leave any kind of measure of justice for, for family members left behind. So I think it's, it's a good law. I think it's a, a move in the right direction, um, but it certainly will, you know, obviously cause concern for, for an economic concern um, for, for people. Yes. Uh, thanks, 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 Joe. Uh, Professor Beer, uh, what's the thinking from inside, you know, the insurance companies about this law? Are, are they afraid of this law in the sense that it's just another 
uh, way for damages to be increased? Well, uh, let me give you the quantitative answer. And that is, I think that the latest estimate was something like $2 billion of additional costs, um, which theoretically then has to get built into the pricing structure. Uh, so it, it needs to be addressed and, and not to wave the flag that I waved earlier today, but this is a classic example of this audience has an opportunity to play a role in understanding, underwriting these type of risks. Um, the colleagues that, that I'm dealing with today, obviously, you know, they're on the front lines and they are very experienced. So when we talk about no spillover effect, it might not be spillover relative to specific cases, but theoretically it affects every form of liability, whether it be general liability, auto liability, products liability, uh, all those lines of business could theoretically be influenced. So um, good underwriting is gonna be necessary. So I, forgive me for avoiding the, the ethical issue. The fact of the matter is that if this law gets uh, signed, uh, it's something that the insurance industry is gonna have to deal with and recognize and anticipate from a cost perspective from a terms and conditions perspective, from an underwriting perspective, uh, and obviously from a claim settlement perspective. So I guess I'm just looking at it almost as inevitable. That's certainly the, the theme that I'm getting from this group. And I, I see no reason to believe that it would be given the environment we're in. I see no reason that it would be overturned. So uh, from that perspective, the insurance industry is just gonna you know, grit its teeth and recognize that this is gonna have implications and try to come up with an intelligent way of dealing with it. Have they already started to come up with uh, with a response to this by way of pricing or um, anything else? Well, theoretically, it doesn't exist, so therefore the prices shouldn't affect that. Um, I would, if only that were the case with the price of gasoline, but let's leave that aside. <laughs> right. The important point is, though, that at this point, there's you there'd be no reason to solicit regulators to allow you to increase prices simply because it isn't an effect. Uh, on the other hand, you better be prepared. You better be ready and having conversations. By the way, what it may lead to is companies being less anxious to write business in New York State. Um, so let's make sure we understand that that's a possibility. Um, but given the, ironically, given the property risks that exist around the world, casualties become more interesting. So as Professor Jennings pointed out, the industry is very complex today with regard to hard markets and pricing. So I think they would just look at this as yet another example of an issue that has to be reflected in pricing. Okay, that's a great answer. And that's something certainly that we'll have to take a look at. As we have mentioned, this has passed both houses of the legislature. It's awaiting Governor Hopel's uh, signature. Um, I don't think that anyone thinks that she won't sign it. I think probably she'll wait until after the election because we'd only give uh, you know, fodder to a campaign before the election. So. We'll see what happens after it, but uh, certainly it's something that we're going to have to keep our eyes on. And that's why we mentioned it here, because it does tie into our, our discussion about what the value of cases and what the value of, of, uh, of settlements were. Um, let me just mention this when we were talking about the settlements, uh, were they the same, greater or less than in 2020? 55% um, said they were greater in 2020. And 44% of our participants said they were the same. So that just leads some credence to the fact that, you know, the value of settlements, the value of the claims, the value of the cases <coughs> is probably going up. Um, maybe just a function of, of the times and the factor that everything is now seemingly more expensive. And we also have to factor in inflation. 
you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about here is that we have been in a relatively low inflation era uh, over the past, I don't know, 15 years or so. But now when you have inflation at seven, eight percent, things get much more expensive. And as jurors see that reflected in the costs that they're dealing with, they probably will be adding that into their calculations, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly when they start figuring out value of, of injuries. Uh, do you think that's going to happen, uh, Joe Donahue? Yeah, I, I think, you know, jurors look at things exactly like we do. Um, you know, how far does your money go? And, you know, how can that possibly not affect, um, you know, if, if plaintiffs proven their case in terms of liability and damages, the value of those damages, they perceive it, you know, how do they not include that into their analysis? And I think you're right. I don't think it's, I think it's just done, you know, implicitly. I don't think it's something that maybe they consciously think of, but it's just, hey, it's going to cost this much to, to go to a doctor, or this much to just survive. Um, and that just automatically will transfer transfer over to uh, to verdicts, I believe. Okay, thanks. Anything that some anybody can do on the defense side, uh, Jeff Miller, Jeff Shulman, John Tambasia, um, Nancy, dealing with the issue of inflation, just plain inflation and damages, not just social inflation, just <clears throat> inflation of everything, all the costs that we've got. I think it's I think part of it is keeping the whole trying to stress the reasonableness, 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 and keep on hammering the reasonableness of. But the reality is, you know, at one point in time, I thought my dollar an hour babysitting was a great earnings. And my daughters are like, we're not doing that for $18 an hour. And that's who's going to be on the juries. And that's where the numbers have gone. Um, and I agree with that. You know, when Joe puts up Blackboard's numbers, you know, has an economist saying, you know, an electrician who is injured is going to, you know, project it out over the next 20 years, make X. It's hard to dispute that, especially if they have tables to back it up, um, union tables to back it up. Um, one area that is effective, I think, for defendants are, uh, and I find uh, fuel for cross-examination is on life care plans. I think there's always uh, information in there uh, that you can, if you get down into the nitty gritty, <clears throat> you can find stuff uh, that could really uh, uh, defend those claims pretty well. I, I, you know, I've, I've never seen a life care plan that was ironclad the way an economist might project out a wage. And that probably will ring true with inflationary pressures too. Good, good, excellent. Um, well, we're running up on uh, our, our finishing point and I wondered if there were any questions from our, uh, our participants, whether anybody out there wanted to ask anything before we um, finish our webinar today. And we have no open questions now, um, but we've had great questions along the way. As we wrap up our, our first Pilinger uh, Miller Trialo Claim Settlement Institute, I do want to thank all of our participants for taking the time to join us today. I also want to thank, in particular, our panelists. Uh, obviously, you guys are, are great and you give us your time, your insight, and your experience, and we thank you for that. Um, we hope that we've added value, that we've uh, advanced 
um, what we would like to call, you know, a value-added proposition and create a value to advance the art and science of settlements. That's our goal with the Claim Settlement Institute. We want to gather like-minded individuals from our different stakeholders and try and come up with an interesting program so we can address topics that are relevant. And if anyone has an idea that they'd like to have us cover in a subsequent CSI, please feel free to contact us. As I mentioned before, I'd like to thank uh, the people at St. John's for their help. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Levine for his uh, particular help uh, in putting our program together. And of course, all our participants, uh, Jeff Miller, Jeff Shulman, John Cambasia, Vincent Kalaniglou, uh, Je Joe Donahue, Jack Jennings, Al Beer. Um, I don't think I'm forgetting anybody. Um, so, and I wanna thank you on behalf of Pillinger Miller Torallo uh, for being a part of our inaugural uh, Claims Settlement Institute. So thank you very much and have a nice evening.